resurrection for unbelievers, you know, believers have the new body. What yeah. happens with their body? So unbelievers. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, the uh, um, end of Matthew 25 um, uh, shows us eternal, eternal um, destruction. Yeah, and we see eternal condemnation. Um, and so what everyone gets is going to last. Um, uh, our, ours will last and eternal bliss and uh, being with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth and and like a, uh, you know like perfect bodies right yeah that's right and not not decaying um, I, I um, hope I can run all day if I want to and not get tired or, or sore afterward uh, but I don't know uh, but yeah no, no sense of breakdown or or sickness no colds any of that kind of thing um, so, so a believer yeah. wouldn't feel pain, but an unbeliever will. will. Yeah, that's so right. So that's when Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's it's he's referencing the lake of fire, the the final state for the unbeliever. Yeah, and so he brings in that that physical aspect of it. Um, you know, I've I've had and maybe you've had you know sickness, maybe when you've got the flu, or sometimes when I've uh, migraines, um, where I'm actually kind of grinding my teeth a little bit or, or gnawing at my, my tongue. And I think that's, that's probably the weeping, the gnashing of teeth kind of thing, which is where you're in, um, you know, that, that kind of pain. Okay. So good, good questions. Any other things that you're thinking about right now? Okay. Um, let's, um, Let's go to um, Revelation 19 right now, and then we'll pop back up to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, these are some, uh, again, key passages. Um, that we're looking at when we're looking at Jesus' return. And so you have about seven accounts of final judgment and Jesus' return in the book of Revelation and different different visions that got John's given to to uh, show what this will be like. So it's like um, when you watch a, a movie or a TV show that sometimes uh, messes with time, like they show it all from one character's vantage point. And then the next scene, next scene or after the commercial, they come back and they you realize, oh, they've gone back in time. And now they're showing the same scene from this other character's vantage point. So it's like that. That's what um, almost all Old Testament prophecy does. So the Old Testament prophets do this. They give, talking about the same event, they talk about it over and over again with different uh, pictures, uh, different visions. Um, Sometimes, uh, like, you know, Allison, what's in Isaiah 20? Naked Isaiah, so Isaiah's naked for a while, and he's demonstrating what he demonstrates in other visions, in other um, uh, preaching that he gives, uh, other symbolic gestures that he gives, or symbolic actions um, that that he gives. And so, Revelation is really it's a it's an Old Testament prophets book, but it's in the New Testament, and given by John, probably the very last book. Of the of the New Testament, but if you don't understand how Old Testament prophecy works, 
then you're going to get really lost in Revelation because uh, you'll you'll try to take it, which most unfortunately do today, not not uh, through the history of the church, but the last hundred years in the United States, we've said history doesn't matter. Those old guys, they don't understand things as well as we do, because I was born in 1912. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, but, um, uh, yeah, so um, we look at the book of Revelation, and we see how it, it repeats these various things. So you've got, you know, final judgment um, shown to us, and Jesus' return shown to us at the end of chapter 6. Uh, but you also see it here in, in 19 and 20. And even in 1920, you get some back and forth. You see the pictures um, of different aspects of it. Now, here's, here's so in 19, we see Jesus um, doing what he said to, that he, um, uh, when he talked to the Pharisees and Sadducees, when they said, you know, give glory to God. Uh, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Okay, all king language, you know. Christ, the Son of the Living God, um, and He says, "I am," and you shall see the Son of Man coming from the clouds of heaven. Um, Jesus referred to this again at the beginning, or at, at the Matthew uh, twenty-five in verse thirty-one, when He says, "The Son of Man, when He comes in all His glory with His angels with Him, will separate the sheep from the goats." And so John shows this as well uh, in Revelation uh, nineteen. Um, and we'll, we can, uh, start in verse 11. And this is the scene where Jesus is, is coming back. And, and Betsy, if you didn't see that brochure yet that I sent to you, they really like close up shots. And, and especially they told us since we are surrounded by linoleum and yellow walls, they want close up shots with a lot of bokeh in them. That's what they like. Bokeh, it means. It means the background behind the face is all blurred. And so you can set your camera in a certain way. So when you see professional photography, um, you'll see, you know, like a couple of faces. And then what's behind them is just blurred. And that's not done on the computer. That's actually because they've set the camera so that the focus is very tight at a particular place, like you learned in your optics classes in physics. <laughs> Yeah, that's what portrait mode does that automatically for you. That it, so it, it puts it, so you don't want to do that if you've got like people over five feet of depth that you're trying to all get in focus because the people in the back will be out of focus. You keep it out of portrait mode. So anyway, okay. So uh, Revelation 19. Let's uh, let's look at. Uh, Verses 11 um, through 16, and I may interrupt us as we as we go through this, but um, let's go ahead and, and get a start here. And um, let's, uh, how about if we go back to uh, Faith and then Joyce and then Jim and across the back row there. Okay, any guesses to who this is? Yep, sounds like Jesus. What are some things here that would make it? Now we'll see more, but what are some things here that would make us conclude that this is Jesus? Okay, he judges. Yeah. Um, so we see in John um, 5, uh, 22 and 27, Jesus tells the, the Jews there at the feast he's at, at Passover feast, that 
uh, he's the judge and that the father has entrusted all judgment to him. The father judges, judges no one, he says in 520, John 5.22. Um, okay, what else do we see that sounds like Jesus? Okay, he's faithful and true. Uh, we can say this in an absolute sense about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. I am the truth, Jesus says. Um, but also faithful. Um, first Peter, um, uh, five, uh, no, first Peter, uh, three 22, you know, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So utterly sinless. So faithful and true. What else do we see in this verse that indicates it's Jesus? Well, the white horse is the symbol of like the good guy. Yeah, it, it is. It's really, it, it is the symbol of the good guy, the white horse. It's, it's like we did in our uh, uh, cowboy western melodramas in, in the silent era movie where they wanted to make sure you knew who the good guy was. And so he was dressed with the, he had the white hat and uh, the bad guy had the black hat. Um, Okay, so that's another thing. What else? He makes war. He makes war. Yeah. So we saw him speak in warlike ways against the Pharisees during his life. Good. What else? He's heaven. Yeah, he's coming from heaven. And so this is this is fulfillment, like we said, of what he said um, to the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees at his trial with the Sanhedrin. Um, he says, you'll see the kind of son of man coming with the clouds and glory. Okay? And, and so, and as Jesus said of himself to his disciples in Matthew 25, with all his angels with him, um, uh, separating the sheep from the goats. And so this is another picture of that, um, this time that John is giving us um, in uh, probably around A.D. 95. Okay, uh, next, next verse, Joyce. Okay. Uh, what else might, one big thing here that seems like Jesus, what would that be, you think? Yeah. So this is the king. Um, and he's king not just of um, uh, Pakistan, but he's, he's the king who has made disciples of all nations. Okay. So, you know, that, that very well could be why his many crowns, uh, because he's, he's king of the one holy nation. First um, Peter two nine and ten, uh, but but it's a it's a one holy nation made up of the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations, and so people from all the nations, or as John said in Revelation five, uh, people coming from uh, every tribe, tongue, and, and, and nation, language, and they were around the throne of Jesus in heaven. The, that is these dead souls and proclaiming him as God and their king. Um, okay. Um, next, verse 13. Jim. He has dressed the robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Okay. Um, so who who's known as the word of God in Scripture? Jesus. Jesus, yes. And where did we see that? John 1. John 1. And who's writing Revelation? John. John. So, so John picks up this, this language that he's, he's used probably ten or five years before, um, a good, good date for the gospel. John's about AD 90. 
Um, and, and so he had gone through this whole thing in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, you can see it in your um, uh, declaration of the gospel this morning. On uh, in your worship guides, you know, and the, and the word was God and the word came among us and, and, you know, took on flesh. Um, and so, um, he's dressed in a, a robe dipped in blood. So how's that like Jesus? Yeah, the crucifixion. So Jesus, this King is associated with blood. Uh, this King of many crowns associated with blood. Uh, he's faithful He's true. Um, we didn't go over um, one little neat thing there. Uh, he has a name from verse 12. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Um, yeah, that that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Um, have you ever heard of or can you recall anything about um, that when you get named and what the significance of that is? Yeah, and, and so we understand that in a, 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 a implicit kind of way today that when someone names you, when someone give, gives you a nickname, they're exercising power over you. And if you say, don't call me that, and they call you that anyway, right? Like T-Bone. Um, <laughs> T-Bone, T-Bone. Um, that, that, that it's exercising power, like, you know, when... Somebody calls you Johnny instead of John. You know, it can be a belittling thing to you. But we see from Scripture, you know, who gets renamed in Genesis? A couple of people. Jacob gets renamed to what? Israel. Israel. And the names mean two different things. From he who... Uh, 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 yeah, the deceiver, the supplanter, uh, to Israel, which means what? Basically, he who overcomes. Yeah. Um, who else gets uh, renamed? And so God does that, and God has the right to give names. Yeah, Christina who? Abraham. Abraham. And so what was his first name? Abram. Abram, yeah. A, a, a great, great father. Uh, and then Abraham means father of many nations. Uh, but God gives these names, and these names have significance. And so your kid doesn't name himself or herself. Who names the kid? The parents. the parents. They have authority over the kid. They have power over the kid, authority over the kid. And so they name, they name the child. And so who gives Jesus a name? Himself. Certainly not us. And that's the point. Right? Because do we even know the name? No. What's it say there? Look down. No one knows but he himself. Okay? So, and, and so this is, this is part of, um, in the ancient world, they were very in tune with this in, in various nations and various religions. If you could name a god, you could have power over him or it was like an incantation that you could have power over this God and gain things from him. In theology, they call it name theology. And, and, and so, um, you know, what is, what is your God's name uh, is, is, a, is a way to get at your God or to control your God.
Um, and uh, this is uh, this is why God kind of gives himself. Um, well, first of all, God names himself. Uh, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And and God says, well, you know, tell them I am sent you or I am the one who causes uh, the one who causes things to be has sent you. Um, and, and so uh, God gives his own name. Um, he names himself. No one else names him. And that's in contrast to all the gods of the world. Because all the gods of the worlds have received their name from whom? Their worshippers. Yeah. Their the men the, the men who created them, uh, or the women who created them, depending on the god, um, gave their god a name. So they are, you know, without realizing it, they're actually showing that they're the creator of their own god, which is a ridiculous idea. And so uh, God... Uh, um, emphasizes this and you can if you keep this in mind as you read the old testament and the new testament you can see this at play um, an idea that was firmly in the minds of of jewish people and people of other nations um, the idea of the naming of of your god and so when jesus comes this is this is a little thing here that lets us know um, this is not a man-made god who's coming or a figment of man's imagination uh, but rather uh, this is somebody, um, this is a God who is God himself. The namer of everyone else is coming. And only he knows knows that name. Okay. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Yeah, Matthew. So with respect to when Abraham asked who sent him, you know, who should, what he sent him. Moses, yeah. Yeah, Moses. Yeah. Um, You're forgiven. Thank you. <laughs> um, he doesn't really provide a name though does he he kind of skirts the issue in, in the traditional sense basically he references himself as something that everybody is a cognizant of yeah there, there are a bunch of things going on and those are a couple of things that you mentioned there so in, a, in effect um, so, so in our English Bibles it says tell them I am sent you Okay, I am is a translation of the Hebrew verb Yahweh, which sometimes you hear that reference Yahweh. And, and it's the causative form of the way you can say I am. So it means I cause to be. Now that's kind of complicated and you can, Hebrew is a little, a little tricky sometimes. It's a, it's a primitive language like all languages were back then, like Egyptian think hieroglyphics. They're looking at a picture and saying that means something. Um, and but but it seems to be based on where it's used in other places that um, it's uh, this idea that God is saying the the full name. Think of Native American names. Dances with wolves. Why do they name Kevin Costner that? Because he danced with wolves. That's right. Who's his friend that becomes his friend at the end? The kind of cries. Um, yeah, him. Uh, but 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 what's that? <laughs> um, but but there are these in Native American culture. They have these uh, sentence names, and and those were true in the ancient world as well. And and I am or Yahweh is a sentence name for God, and you shorten that. Sometimes just just 
because you don't want to say um, you're the guy who was born in California, whose dad was lived in Mexico, and now you live in North Carolina. That's a, that's a hard way to call somebody something, right? Um, and so you just say California. And so Yahweh is the shortened form of the God who causes the armies to be, or the hosts. And so we see this like in, in um, uh, uh, a mighty fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Sabaoth is the, the Hebrew word for hosts, and that's speaking of the angelic army that God sends in front of his people to fight the battle before them, to confuse the troops of the people who are coming against his people and all that. And so that, that name Yahweh or the um, old King James translates that Jehovah. They turn the Y into a J. Okay, and so you can kind of think about it there. But Yah Yahweh um, or Jehovah, um, that's this, um, I cause the, the angelic army to be, or I raise the angelic army for my people. Or the substance of it is the God who fights for his people. And that's, that's the message to Moses, really. Who, when the people say, who sent me, tell them the God who fights for them has sent you. That's the, the warrior God, that God is a warrior, which, and that comes out in the song at the Red Sea in Exodus 15 as well. So essentially, I mean, it's, it's akin to a container, and like a container, it has constraints, and that's why a name can be powerful, because it, it kind of limits who the person is. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, in the office. Yeah, it can be limiting. Yeah, in the office. Plop. Plop. Um, yeah. Or the IT guy, and he's asking, like, you know what religion are you and he says but i'm also this uh -huh. so yeah yeah um so uh, uh anyway so so there we go um uh, jesus comes and and he is this he is this god um that uh is not named by men uh but but names himself and sometimes doesn't reveal what his name is um, okay, uh, on to uh, verse uh, 14. Okay, now here, here we go with the idea of Yahweh, who's coming. Um, so verse 14, Christina. Yeah. The armies of heaven will follow him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Okay, um, so uh, who's following Jesus on his white horse? The heavenly hosts, yeah, um, the armies of the Lord. Uh, but then we find out also what, what's being worn by at least some in this group that's following him. White linen, yeah, that's what's being worn. And so when we go, uh, when we look back up um, uh, to um, verses six through eight, there. Um, Actually, uh, let's let's uh, yeah six through eight. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of wash, rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, "This is in heaven, hallelujah!" For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Okay, so the 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 second coming is about to happen, and Jesus is about to exercise his reign over all the earth, and not just be king over his people, but to be dominant um, reigner over everything. Um, for our Lord God Almighty reigns, 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. Okay, so who's the lamb? Jesus. And who's his uh, bride? The church. the church. Okay, so Jesus is about to be united physically with his church. The wedding of the lamb has come. And so they're rejoicing because they know when Jesus is united physically, when he raises the dead and uh, brings them to himself, when there's this wedding of him resurrected Jesus with his resurrected believers, that, th that this is the wedding of the lamb. And when the wedding of the lamb happens, when this uniting of Jesus and his people come together in their resurrected bodies, also you have the new heavens and new earth. You see that there, how they're joined here? Um, where, where do we see it in those verses I've just read? Okay, the wedding is the, the one side of it. So that means Jesus is being, meeting his people in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. right? He's coming back bodily, and he's raising the dead bodily, his people in the air. So the wedding of the Lamb has come. And then what indicates that that is connected with the new heavens and new earth in these two verses? It's like the remaking of the earth, the rushing waters and thunder. Not, not quite, not quite. When the new heavens and new earth exists, who rules over it? Yeah, and so there we go. The Lord Almighty reigns. Do you see that? So they're rejoicing in heaven because they're they're at the cliff. They're like we've we've reached it. Here's the Pacific Ocean, you know, or whatever. And, and so they've reached it, and they're like, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and, and so this is this is the wedding of the Lamb and the Lord Almighty reigning together. How do we know the Lord is about to reign over all things? Because the wedding of the Lamb has come, or vice versa, right? Those two things are joined together. When Jesus joins with his people in resurrected um, in resurrected glory, um, it's the time where where Jesus is reigning over, over all. Um, so let us rejoice, verse 7, look there again, and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Um, uh, so the bride is whom again, or is who again? The church. The church. What needs to happen on the earth for the bride to be ready for Jesus to come again? All the elect have to be brought in. Remember in, in Revelation 6, the, the dead souls around the throne in heaven said to Jesus, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And he says, be patient until I brought all your brothers in. Okay, so the bride has made herself ready. That means everybody that the father has elected to eternal life, everyone the son has died for, everyone now the spirit has given life and they've come to believe. The bride is ready. There's not a part of her garment that is missing. Completely ready. And so once all... All, all the people that God's going to save are in, um, then the, the bride is ready. And then look what, uh, look what the bride is wearing, verse 8. 
Yeah, fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Um, and then fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Um, so uh, we are, are, are saved and we are uh, clothed with fine linen. Do you remember Jesus' parable about the wedding supper? And the, 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 the father is throwing this great wedding supper for his son and, and, and uh, uh, invites people and they don't come. Those are the Jews during Jesus' day in the first century. And so he says, okay, invite more. So they go out to the Gentiles. You know, Acts 8, they go to the Samaritans. And in Acts 10, they go out to the Gentiles. So they go, and they invite more and more people until the master says, until my house is full. Okay, and so this is Jesus gathering the elect from all nations, great commission, throughout all history. We don't know how long that history is going to be, right? No one knows the time when Jesus comes again, he says. Uh, but he won't come until he's gathered everyone he's going to gather. Um, and then um, in that parable, Jesus tells of the wedding supper, there's one guy there who stands out. Who's that guy who's at the... the He's with every. He's with everybody who's a, a guest at the wedding supper. He's not dressed yeah, he's not dressed in wedding. What he came in flip flops and a, a, a ripped shirt. Yeah, and uh, what does the master of that ceremony say about that guy? Yeah, throw him out. Uh, where there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, um, and so. We, we tie all these biblical things together, right? And, and we say, okay, so those who are guests at the, at the wedding supper, those who are properly present at the wedding supper of the Lamb have this fine linen, uh, which is um, our, our deeds. Now, our deeds haven't gotten us the invitation, uh, but our deeds adorn us um, as we're there. Uh, Jesus says, you know, like of those who do their good works before men, they've received their reward in full because they've gotten the praise of men. What's the implication there for those who do their deeds not to be seen? Yeah, they'll have reward at final judgment. They'll have reward in the new heavens and new earth. And so you see this tying in um, to, to this with the, the fine linen that was given, you know, none of our deeds are perfect. None of our deeds dirt, not a single deed we do earns eternal life, but this is a given thing. It's a thing of grace, right? Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. It was given um, to us to wear. Um, so this is a thing of grace. God counts the things we've done that were in obedience to his will, but imperfect with some sinful motives in there. He's covered that imperfection with his blood, with his grace, and he receives those good deeds that we've done, our obediences to him. He receives those graciously. And that's the, the fine linen uh, that we're given to wear, um, the righteous acts, the covenantally faithful, the faithful acts of the, of the saints of us. And so it seems like this group that's following Jesus um, on his white horse is this combination group of um, the angelic host, which Jesus says in Matthew 25, when the, when the king comes in all his glory with his angels with him. But also we see those who are wearing linen 
who are with him. See, see that in verse 14 now? Okay, those who are following him. The armies of heaven. Um, white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Um, that that also seems to include those who have died before um, who are in Christ, who have believed, who are now wearing these, these white linen garments who just a, sec, just a second ago were rejoicing in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. And now they're following Jesus um, behind him um, uh, as, as they come in the clouds. All right. Now, think for a second back to First um, Thessalonians four. Um, those who are coming from heaven with Jesus, um, they've been existing in this intermediate state, as we call it. How bodily or non bodily? Non bodily. Where are their bodies? In the in, yeah, they do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Okay. And so 1 Thessalonians 4, when, when Paul's assuring believers in Thessalonica and in, in AD 50 about that um, those who have died with faith in Christ are still okay, what's he tell them about the order in the resurrection? Yeah, the dead in Christ will be raised first. When Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will be raised first. So here's, here's our picture. Jesus is coming. Uh, riding his white horse, faithful and true, um, many crowns, and behind him then, angelic army and believers, who at least when they're first coming are disembodied or, or souls, the souls of believers. Somehow we're seeing. John sees the, the souls of believers in Revelation 6 around the throne saying, how long, O Lord, do you, do you avenge our blood? There's some sense in which, you know, I don't know, Casper the ghost, go whatever, whatever you want to do with that. Uh, but but then as he comes with the clouds for final battle, we'll see here. What what happens then, according to First Thessalonians four? Our bodies are raised. So their bodies are raised. So if you die before Jesus returns, your soul will come with Jesus following behind him. With your white linen, your body will be raised and you'll be given your, your glorified body. Or as Paul says in, in um, uh, uh, Philippians 3.21, a body like Jesus' body. Um, or as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, an imperishable body. Um, so our dead bodies, our perishable bodies will be raised imperishable. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we'll be like Jesus, bodily, riding behind him at some point as he comes, um, whatever the order of that is, whether we get our bodies before we get our white linen or whether it's, you know, somewhere in the midst or we're riding along and then all of a sudden we're going, hey, <laughs> I've got a body now on our way down. Um, we, don't, we don't know. It's not that, that specific, but those are the things that we're, we're given. Okay, um, so uh, let's see where are we? So armies of verse 14, we're following him, writing, uh, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And then uh, verse uh, 15, 
Um, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. Um, he will rule with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Um, and so a good number of things here. Um, what do we, what do we learn about his mouth? Yeah, what kind of sword? Sharp, Sharp sword. Uh, where do we else do we hear in Scripture about a, a sword, especially in the New Testament? Where, how's the New Testament? What's it teach us about Old Testament swords in the New Testament? What's it, what's that, what's that symbolize? The word, of God. the word of God. Yeah, so where do we have that? Anyone know that, that verse? The word of God is a sword. Yes. Word of God is a double-edged sword, sharper, sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing as far as joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Is it also in Ephesians 6, part of the armor of God? Sure. Ephesians 6, part of the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, so the sword is the Word of God, so the, the truth, the Word of God, so... so you know, there's the word of God that's the Bible. There's the word of God that's Jesus because he's the author of the Bible. But but the Ephesians six talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's one it's one of the armor pieces that Paul identifies um, as to what it is. Uh, but Ephesians, uh, sorry, uh, Hebrews 412 is, is where we have the the, um, the the word of God is is a, a sword, a double edged sword sharper than, you know, um, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Able to judge. So the word of God is a sword that's able to judge and, and divide joints and marrow. Okay, so those are bone terms. Marrow is in the center of your bones and joints are at the end of your bones. But just to distinguish everything, the idea of accurate judgment to divide out. Good action, bad motive. 72.5% good motive there. And here are the six things that are in that 27.5% of bad in the exact, you know, percentages there. Able to divide accurate judgment, just judgment that's not skipping over everything. So what do we have indicated here as Jesus comes back to do final battle? What do we have in, indicated here by this sword that's also associated with Jesus' return? Judgment. Okay? And what will people be judged by according to this image? The Word of God. The Word of God. Yeah. No arbitrary standard. No guesswork. The Word of God. Um, we're not talking about, I like you, I don't like you, or your face is nice, your face is not nice. Did you do this or did you not? And and for those, as Paul talks about in the beginning of Romans, uh, for those who had the word of God, like the Jews, they will be judged by it. Or for people who have had been in churches, they will be judged by as much as they have known specifically. So it's accurate, fair judgment. Jesus comes and he divides joints from marrow you know, and, and, and everything's just exactly judged correctly. And so if somebody has grown up in a church and turned from Jesus, never believed and, and, and walks away, 
they are more accountable. Um, so Jesus says this, Luke, you know, two or twelve twenty-four or twelve forty-two, something like that. To whom much has been given, much is required. Um, and so those who've grown up in a church or even in a Jewish synagogue today, they had stuff there that they're responsible to respond to. And if they didn't respond in faith in Jesus, um, then they'll be judged according to what they've done as recorded in the, the books that record all these things. Um, but those who haven't had the word of God, not in a Jewish synagogue, not in a, a Jewish temple today. Uh, uh, I learned how to ride my bike in Temple Bethel in uh, Rochester, New York. Big, huge parking lot. It was just down the, just down the hill, about uh, 12 houses away from where I grew up. Um, but, uh, 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 okay, now I'm thinking about riding my bike. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, so, so Paul says in Romans 2, quit judging you, Jew you Jewish Christians there in Rome. Quit judging the Gentile Christians in Rome, thinking you're all that because you grew up with the scriptures, the Old Testament. He said, because guess what? You know more and you're not doing more, therefore. But then he says, the law of God is written on the heart of the Gentile. And, and, and we, we get this, we understand it from Psalm 19 as well, that, that non-believers have implanted in them innate knowledge, uh, part of their composition as a human being, they know God exists and they know they're accountable to him. And this is why Romans 1, they suppress the truth because every person, this is our great advantage when we do evangelism, every person we talk to, no matter how adamantly they are saying, I am an atheist, they in their heart, they know God exists. They know they owe everything to him and they know they're accountable and that judgment is coming. And since they don't know the gospel yet, they suppress the truth that they're accountable to God and will be judged by how well they, and here's probably what we can say at the bare minimum, the non-believer knows, law of God written on his heart, what do you think that is? Two things. Love God and love neighbor. Okay, now that gets distinguished more in the Ten Commandments. And then that gets distinguished more in the rest of all the commands that we have in Scripture. All lots and hundreds and hundreds of commands are all uh, uh, expositions or, or uh, of, of loving God and loving neighbor. And so even the person who's never heard of Christianity... Never heard the word church in whatever language. Um, never been in contact with a Jewish person or anything like that. They still have the law of God written on their heart. Um, and they will be judged by how well they have loved their neighbor and loved God. And so, you know, enter in here some of the missionary uh, accounts you've heard of, of tribes that never heard of Christianity or Jesus or Judaism or anything, but knew there was a God and that they were in trouble. And so when the missionary arrived, they say, you're, 
you're the one telling us, <laughs> telling us about this God. Uh, and, and, you know, whole tribes believing because they had, you know, they, this knowledge. They, they weren't suppressing the truth. God was gracious to them and had given them this knowledge. And so they received the gospel uh, when, they, when they heard it. Um, so, um, so Jesus comes and when he comes, we see, so we see these things associated together. When we see Jesus, it's that heaven has just rejoiced because it means he will reign over the earth. It means uh, believers are resurrected. The wedding supper, the supper of the lamb, the um, new heavens and new earth, Jesus reigning on the new heavens and new earth. Uh, final judgment, final battle. See how all these things are, are in this text here, all put together, not in separate visions, but all, all in this one vision that, that John is, is given of the future when Jesus comes back. Does that make sense? How we connect all those things and we don't separate out Jesus coming back from for his uh, believers uh, we don't separate that from the wedding supper of the Lamb. We don't separate that from final judgment. We don't separate that from final battle. Um, those are all together. Um, let's see. So, that, so what's and what's he do with the sharp sword? Verse fifteen strikes down the nation. So he's got his one holy nation. Let's just let's look at that. So keep your finger here. Don't go far back to the left. First Peter two. Um, two seven there, not you who believe. So Peter's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. You believe the stone is precious. Uh, who's the stone? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Um, but to those who do not believe the stone, the builders rejected. So those who have rejected Jesus, uh, has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So you either value Jesus and say, this is the capstone, the beautiful stone of the building. Uh, or the stone causes you to fall. You trip over Jesus because you haven't believed. They stumble because they disobey the message. So they don't believe the gospel. They disobey the gospel, um, which is also what they were destined for. Okay. Um, verse 9, and here's what, why we're here. But you, the church, you believers, are a chosen people. Okay, you weren't destined to stumble. You were chosen um, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Okay, and so that's what we're looking at there. We're a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, we were from various nations. Uh, but now you're the people of God. One holy nation. Uh, once you had not received mercy, you hadn't believed in Jesus, you hadn't been forgiven, but now you've received mercy. So you have this one nation now, as you think about, you know, last times and the last times that we're in, you know, since Jesus came, 
everything's divided into you're either part of the nations, which are part of the kingdom of this world, or you're part of the one holy nation, the people belonging to God, who were once not a people, but now are a people who had once not received mercy and were just part of the nations, but now have received mercy. Um, and so that's us. And so uh, as Jesus comes then, you can flip back to uh, Revelation 19. Isn't it great how Scripture just all fits together? All these various places, all these authors. Um, but, but as you see, Jesus strikes down with the Word of God with the things written in scripture, he strikes down what? Who? The nations. And so what is that in terms of the distinguish the distinguishing we did in First Peter? Who's he striking down? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. Those who are part, aren't a part of the one nation that is the church. Um, he strikes them down. And it, it's not a uh, it's not an arbitrary I don't like you um, kind of thing, but it, it's it's based on the word of God. Uh, I made you and I, get, I implanted in your heart two things. Love me and love other people who bear my image. And you haven't done this. And so that word strikes down the nations and, and, and it's fair. Because they knew this in their hearts and they should have gone seeking because they knew this. They should have said, you know what? I know I'm created. I know God exists and I know I'm in trouble. Is there anything I can do and sought? But as scripture says, our hearts are evil. So no one seeks God. No, not even one. And so God could have left us all to perish because none of us would have seeked. That's what Isaiah says. That's what Paul says. Um, we wouldn't have seeked. But what happened? How are we here? What's that? Yeah, the Holy Spirit opened our eyes. God sought us out. Um, he came and saved us. He was the good shepherd who went after the lost sheep. He pursued us and saved us. Um, gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to, hearts to understand. Okay? Um, so, um, that's also, the, the, to finish out this verse, uh, you'll strike down, with which the sharp sword will strike down the nations. You'll rule them with an iron scepter. And so there's, there's a golden scepter that kindly rules the people. There's an iron scepter. Think of an iron rod, you know, that breaks your limbs. Um, that, that's harsh. Iron is harsh. Um, the, the kingdom of Rome in Daniel um, 7 is spoken of as a kingdom of iron because they were a kingdom that was harsh. They were known for their military. Um, not like the Greeks for their high society and their thinking and that. Not for, not like the Babylonians and the Persians who had wonderful art and great buildings and all that kind of thing. Rome had an army 
and they they were a terrible beast who just chewed you up and ate you alive. That's Daniel Daniel seven, but also um, uh, seen in, in Revelation some. Um, but but Jesus rules them, and he takes his iron scepter, and he he comes in final battle, and, and he rules them or, or dominates them in this way in, in final battle. This is uh, so. Um, and then last little image here that we'll end on. He treads the wine press, the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Um, anyone recall or know or heard anything uh, about um, you know, the wine press and what kind of image that is in Scripture? And the treading, treading the grapes, you know, walking. You know, it's the guys in the big vat, you know, it's stomping on the grapes so that the juice flows out of the, the vent holes or the drainage holes outside the, the big barrel or whatever they're in. What's the, what's that image of wine press? It looks like blood. It looked like, look like blood. You're, you're crushing the grapes and, and bringing the blood out of them. Yeah, yep. It also happened after the harvest. Okay, it happened after the harvest. So it's harvest time. You have the treading of, of grapes. Okay, and that's a symbol of what? Judgment, yeah. Um, through the Old Testament prophets, that's a, a very clear image that's given through v numbers of Old Testament prophets, the, the wine press of God's wrath. And so um, you can probably look, if you've got a Bible that has footnotes on it, um, you know, you can, they may reference some of those uh, prophetic passages for you there. But when Jesus comes, it's battle, it's resurrection, He's coming to rule. He's coming to dwell in joy with his people, the, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. But he comes in judgment as well. He comes with his word with which he judges the nations, an iron scepter uh, with which he brings them into, into uh, submission and they enter into final judgment. But this is a time where the, the wine press is treaded. That is, the grapes are stomped and blood is, is flowing, so to speak. So a, an, an image of final judgment at harvest time. And Jesus, in, in lots of his parables, harvest time is part of them. And harvest time is judgment. When the owner comes back and says, what do you got for me? Show me the harvest of my field that I put you in charge of. And if they, if they don't harvest it, it well, he says, cast them out to the evil, to the evil uh, tenants of the field. Yeah, Jim. That's right. That's right. That's right. Correct. Um, so it's the same level in terms of um, that is the uh, if we did an equal sin with a non-believer, you know, the wrath for that would be the, the same. But for us, it went out on Jesus on the cross and for the unbeliever, he takes it himself because he doesn't have a payment for that sin uh, like Jesus paid for us. OK, yeah. Jesus loves everyone. <laughs> yeah, not if you read the Bible. Isn't that funny? You read the Bible and that just throws out all our theological liberalism. right? At the, you can't be a theological liberal and read the Bible unless you 
do what they do and say, well, these are just the words of men and they're wrong. Yeah. All right, let's pray.